0: The problem with a success story is that, honestly, you have to share the credit with a lot of other people, whereas a failure, they're happy for you to take credit for that. And it fits right into the product management ethos, which is share the credit and take the blame, right? Well, I worked on a product back in the mid-2000s called Accept360. It was a product for product managers. There's no question that using Accept360 would make product management organizations more effective in a lot of different ways. But Accept360 failed as a product. And so in 2011, I started to realize I needed to figure out why a product that I loved, that all of our customers loved, that definitely delivered a lot of value, was not successful. And of course, the lessons I learned I share with you on this podcast and in my book and my coaching and everything else, so you don't have to go through the same thing, or at least you have a higher chance of avoiding it. Hi, I'm Nels Davis, and you're listening to episode number 108 of the Secrets of Product Management podcast. In this episode the story of my struggles to figure out why this great product failed, what I could have done about it, and a bit of the path where that turned into this podcast and everything else, all because of that serious failure. You can find the show notes at secretsofpm.com slash 108, where you can comment, like, rate, subscribe, and do all the things, and find all the links that I mentioned in the episode. So I think all of us product managers agree that we could use some better tools. And of course, now there are a few out there, Product Board, which I mentioned a lot and I was an advisor to, in full disclosure. Calido, a new tool that just came out and whose founder I've actually interviewed for the podcast, that interview will come out in a couple weeks, and several others, of course. But at the time we were building Except360, there actually weren't any tools marketed directly to product managers at all. The pragmatic marketing framework was out there and you could get that training, but there were no tools. There were some requirement management tools and several tools that looked like product management tools, but really were for internal IT dev teams, like Rally Software and Feature Plan, names from the ancient mists of history at this point. Even Jira, as we know today, is better for product management than most of what we used in those days. It barely existed back then and had none of its agile capabilities at that time. So this was back then. Product managers were frustrated, just as many of us are now. Everyone wanted a tool that understood what product managers do, what we think about, and to help us manage the cognitive load of product management. And Accept360, while not perfect, delivered on a lot of those desires. I would still put it up against any of the tools on the market right now. We had a few customers who were very successful with Accept360 and a few big wins, and some almost wins, which you can learn a lot from, of course but we really could not get people to buy it in, in bulk. Our situation was something that a lot of companies struggle with, a lot of product companies. We were solving a problem that was meaningful and had potentially big business impact for our customers. We had customers who were successfully using it and were happy, and we couldn't sell it. And if you think about all those pieces, that adds up to one problem. We didn't have good go-to-market. Well, I know that now. At the time, I didn't understand that. So we did a bad job of going to market with Accept360, but let me drill down what I mean and the process that I had to go through in those years after Accept360 to sort of figure out what that all meant. If you're a regular listener, you're going to hear a bunch of things that are familiar, maybe with a slightly different spin to them. So how did we talk about the transformation that clients would get with Accept360? You know, I talk about the transformation that your customers get as an important component of your customer success stories. Well, the bottom line is we didn't. We trained the salespeople on the features, but not on the pain that prospects were suffering without a solution. We didn't train them on the transformations they would have after they implemented our solution. And we didn't train them on our customers' painful lives before except 360 and their wonderful lives after they got Accept360. And we didn't train them even on the business impact of that transformation. And, of course, that led to failure. Those things that I just mentioned are all components of successful selling. You know, even though the product worked, there was a real problem out there, but because we weren't doing a good job of agitating with the problem and talking about the power of the transformation, it didn't matter how good the product was. It couldn't sell itself, basically. Of course, it took me quite a while to come up with all those realizations, and they didn't come in that order. So, my first big frustration right around the time when except 360 was crashing and burning was that I thought we were just charging too little for Accept360. We were charging the same price as development tools, which is around $1,000 per year per user, but there are one-tenth as many product managers as developers, so it's going to be hard to make any money at that price point. If you think about some good, solid, mid-market developer tools, you know, maybe there are forty million to a hundred million dollar companies. Well, if they're selling to ten times as many people as we are, with except three hundred and sixty, that means we're going to have a four million dollar company. And that's just not big enough to sustain, right? So it was going to be hard to make any money to make a successful business at that price point. But then you have to ask, of course, what is the right number? It seemed like, well, we'll com- we're like a development tool in a lot of ways. We'll charge development tool prices. Well. We had done a bad job, in fact, a non existent job, of articulating or even claiming the business value of using Except360. So, we're claiming that the product helps product management teams make better decisions faster. So, let's say that product managers get 10% better at doing those things, but what's that worth in money, in revenues, in profits? So, I started asking people, what's the business value of product management? And no one knew that number. No one apparently was even asking the question. So I asked it and answered it. Of course, just to be clear, this was after Accept360 had failed. Better timing would have been to do this before the failure, unfortunately. And getting the answer turned into one of the first articles I wrote for what became the Secret Product Manager Handbook blog and later the book, What is the Business Value of Product Management? Well, let me explain what I mean by the number. You know, when you hire a salesperson, when a company hires a salesperson, There's an expectation of how much additional revenue will be coming in from that salesperson once they get ramped up. It might be half a million dollars. It might be a million dollars, depending on the product and the market and how they sell and things like that. But there's always a number. And conversely, if a company says, well, we need to grow by X amount of millions of dollars in the next year, along with that number comes, so we'll need X number of salespeople to achieve that, whatever the ratio is. So I'm wondering, what's the number for a product manager? If you hire a new product manager into a company, what should be the expectation for how much more revenue eventually results? And it's actually pretty easy to do the math on this. For enterprise software companies, that number is around 5 to $10 million in additional revenue. Well, I'll leave the math out of it in terms of how I came up with that. I do have an article on it. I'll put a link in the show notes. But over time you can kind of think of each product manager as being responsible in some sense for about 5 to $10 million in additional annual revenue. And maybe that might be lagging a lot more than the salespeople. Salespeople, they make their revenue this year. Product managers, the decisions that we make this year might turn into revenue next year or something like that. But assuming the promise of a product management tool vendor is reliable, that they can improve your product management team's effectiveness by 10%, What's the value of that improvement? Well, now we know, we can do a little math, it's half a million dollars or a million dollars per product manager. In other words, 10% more effective means that we make 10% more money than we would have otherwise, right? That's the bottom line. That's a reasonably large amount of money. So how much would you be willing to spend for a tool that you give to your product managers to get that? well, I bet you'd be happy to spend a lot more than $1,000 per user per year to get a half a million or a million dollars back. Maybe you'd even be willing to spend 10000 per user. And that then puts us into the realm of companies that can actually make enough money to survive. So, of course, we were not telling that story with Accept360 or anything like that. And, in fact, the current, the current world of product management tools doesn't charge those prices either. I think they should make that argument. But they didn't, and they don't now. So, and of course, that's just numbers. And it, as you know, I don't believe in using numbers for persuasion per se, but you do need to know what the business value of the thing you're building is. And other enterprise software tools, have, they know the number. Product management tools, they tend to not know that number. So, But we do need more emotionally engaging customer data for persuasion, like personal pain and frustration. I'll get to that in a little bit. But before we get to that, there's still another open loop that's sort of on the dollar value of product management tools. So I said, except 360 could make the product managers 10% more effective. So I know what that's worth if we can achieve it, but is it? does it actually happen? And that's kind of what started me on this whole process of figuring out the underlying secrets of product management that apparently people hadn't asked before. Like, what's the value of a product manager, which I have already talked about. What's the value of product managers getting better? Well, if we can get 10% better, it's a million bucks. Where are product managers leaving money on the table that could be easily improved? In other words, where can this tool create some leverage so that product managers can be more effective? How can I help product managers make these improvements, like increase their impact, and as a side effect, maybe even accelerate their careers and help them move into leadership? And that then required another set of questions, which is essentially, what is product management anyway? What do product managers do that enables the company eventually to have meaningful, transformative products to sell and to be able to sell them? Well, it only took me about four years to realize it was, at bottom, very simple. Product managers do market discovery to find market problems that are worth solving, meaning problems bad enough that enough people will pay for a solution to make a company. We then work with developers and others to create a solution to those problems that's differentiated and high enough quality that can deliver on the promises. And then product managers work with marketing and sales to take those solutions to market. In short, product managers find market problems, create solutions, and then take the solutions to market. I call this the secret product management framework. I called it secret because no one seemed to know it. So it's not secret anymore, obviously, because I have uncovered it. Now, in my experience, I felt that the first point, finding worthwhile market problems, and the last point, taking the solution to market, tended to not be well understood by most product managers or companies or teams. And that's where I focused most of my attention, as you know, especially on the go-to-market end, because the reality is Teresa Torres has the market discovery side covered like a blanket, so check the show notes for a link to her site. She's got amazing resources on market discovery. I've done a little bit on there, but she's really the expert. There was one more critical early linchpin, though, for me as well. And I just wanted to mention this. In 2012, I read the amazing book, The Inmates Are Running the Asylum by Alan Cooper. And I'd been reading Kathy Sierra's Creating Passionate Users blog for years already. That was already going for many years by the time. Uh, I was actually working on Except 360 So their message combined into something quite amazing. Kathy said that our job as product people is to enable our customers to be awesome. Not to be awesome at our product, to be awesome at their thing. Whatever that might be, our product has to support them being awesome. And then Alan Cooper in Inmates describes what he calls personal goals. A personal goal is something that gives me or takes away job or personal satisfaction or motivation. A great personal goal to keep in mind as a template kind of is don't make me look or feel stupid. Well, roughly speaking, people only love products that A, make them awesome, and B, help them achieve personal goals. Now the corollary of course is that they only buy products when whatever they have now is not making them awesome and or not helping them achieve personal goals. Now, that kind of thinking led to my article, The Best Way to Engage Your Audience is to Help Them Kick Ass. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And then finally, just as I put all these things together, I came to an amazing realization. Obviously, the market problem that you're solving is the most important thing if you're a product manager or for your product. People aren't going to buy your product if it doesn't solve some problem for them. It could be the best technology in the world, but if it doesn't do something valuable, if it doesn't in some way make them awesome, they're not going to buy it. But then I realized that the next most important part of the whole process was actually not the product itself, the the solution to the problem. It is the go-to-market component, meaning how people find out about your product, how you talk about it, how you get leads into your marketing funnel, how you move the leads through the sales process, stuff like that. And just to prove this, you can think about two, two things in particular. One is Kickstarter and one is charlatans. So what is a Kickstarter? It's where someone puts up an idea for a product and gets people to pay for it before it's built. How do people succeed with Kickstarters? They do a great job of go to market, finding the people who need the proposed solution, persuading them them that the proposed solution will be significantly better than what they have now, that it will be worth the price, and that the vendor can build it. How do charlatans make money? Well, they promise amazing results for using a product, which the product probably does not deliver. It's an interesting question. Is being a charlatan a good way to build a business? Well, this is a little snarky, but Many skeptics would say that most dietary and herbal supplements have no actual effect on people's health, but that's a multi-billion dollar market with long-term businesses, so you can be the judge of that question. So rehashing. It's important to understand the business value of the thing you're selling and how it delivers on that value. Even if you can't put definite numbers to it, you can work off the story the customer will tell you about how awesome it made them and how it delivered not just business results, but personal results. So my evolution in thinking started from figuring out the value piece and then realizing that you really have to articulate the pain and the story of the transformation. This is based on the experiences of your successful customers and the stories you get from them. You have to make your customers awesome, of course, so they have these great stories. And the stories also have to be about personal goals being achieved, not just business goals. And you can have a great product, but you need a great go-to-market if you're gonna have a successful company. And I put all these lessons to use later And of course I've incorporated them all into the book and to the podcast, as you know, but I wasn't able to do it while it accepts sadly and that ship has sailed, of course. You know, at some point in this whole process I learned about how to tell stories as well. I'd been terrible at telling stories all my life even though I knew rationally that stories were super important, but I just didn't have the storytelling gene. I even did a lot of studying on this. I read books on screenplay writing, on creative writing. I read the Joseph Campbell books. None of it worked. I still couldn't tell stories until I learned a really simple technique for telling stories in job interviews. And for some reason, at that point, it all clicked and came together. And then I was able to not only start putting together my own stories and bring in all this stuff that I had learned from reading the screenplay writing books and the creative writing books, but in particular, it gave me insight into how to tell a customer story that was engaging, differentiating, exciting, and powerful. So I've shared a lot about storytelling in this podcast, so I won't go into more detail in this episode. You can check the show notes for a few particularly good episodes and some articles I've written about storytelling, especially customer success stories. Of course, let me know if you want more episodes about storytelling. I'm happy to share everything I know and learn. But let's wind this up. My little look back into the history of my evolution in product management thinking, and here are three things you can start doing today based on some of the ideas in here. First of all, you do need to understand what is the business impact of your product if it's an enterprise product, and what is the personal impact of your product if it's a consumer product. What pains are your best prospects suffering from today that your product will solve? What is keeping them from being awesome? And what are the personal goals of your prospects, and how does your product help them achieve those goals? Turn that into stories, or often you can get these from your customer stories. Now, I've mentioned several resources that influenced me a lot in this episode. In particular, I want to share, and there'll be links to these in the show notes, the following two really important ones. One is Kathy Sierra's Building the Minimum Badass User Talk from the 2012 Business of Software Conference. I recommend this video so often that I have a keyboard shortcut for typing it out. I also recommend her book, Badass, but the video will be one of the best hours you ever spent in your product management continuing education. And then, of course, there's Alan Cooper's The Inmates Are Running the Asylum, which I mentioned earlier. It's a great iconoclastic book. Most of the points are still as true today as they were when it was published in 1999. Uh, There is a new edition now, so worth looking for that, and I'll have a link for that in the show notes. So this has been the episode about my failure. And as I said up at the top, You know, the problem with a success story is that honestly you have to share the credit with a lot of other people, whereas a failure, they're happy for you to take credit for that. And it fits right into the product management ethos, which is share the credit and take the blame. When Accept360 failed, I felt it was my fault. And certainly it was partially my fault, at least if not wholly. And I wanted to figure out what the heck had happened and what I could learn from that. And that's what has turned into all the stuff that I do now And I feel like I've figured out a lot, and if people take any advice from what I've just shared about knowing the value of the thing you're solving, knowing how it addresses people's desire to be awesome and their personal goals and having techniques like storytelling, then I'll have done my job. This has been episode number 108 of the Secrets of Product Management podcast. You can find the show notes at secretsofpm.com 108. You can comment, like, subscribe, review, complain, all those things on the show page there, as well as find all the links that I've mentioned. Until next time, this is Nels Davis. Bye-bye.